What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, mm. brothers or something like that, okay. and have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best. Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies right. or shepherds. Yep. So if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get mm. a German Shepherd or a Dutch Shepherd from is Haus Hamburg Shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All right. So now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution? Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those Shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So what about we get one sent here to Australia? Right. You'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs. Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear, all your dog training needs, because mm-hmm. we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs yep. will be met by Ironswick Dog Quip. Oh, the bullfed himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars. All that Training stuff. devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah. You'll be able yep. to get that from Ironswick because yep. you're going to be here in Australia. Well, that means that you have to go up. North, further north, yep. in, in North America, yep. and go and see old mate Mach Le Point. Yep. And get everything from Canine everything. Dynamics. Oh, Canine Dynamics. Yep. Yep. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah. I can get that from Canine Dynamics. Yep. From in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benway. Yeah. So I'm actually going to get my dog. Tra- I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to get a play and train mm-hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia Ashland. as well. Ashland, Ashland Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So everything both there is. Yeah. Uh, I can be either one of those mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home, train that dog. Well, you're sipping- Cafe just, lattes. Just, just gallivanting yeah. all over Gallivanting. The <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm at my house and Glenn's in the studio. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like Groundhog Day, isn't it, really? Sure is. It feels like Uh, that a little bit on a day-to-day basis. You know, like we were having a work meeting the other day and we're doing multiple Zoom work meeting lessons and it's kind of like Groundhog Day. Get up, wander around the house. To be honest, like I know I can't complain too much. Living on a nice property, the weather has been absolutely beautiful for winter weather, which makes it sad when I look go out in the shed and I look at my motorbike just sitting there. However, I am allowed to move between resorts because I'm an essential worker, but you know, you still got to be delicate and careful about how you do that because 
one wrong move, someone brings COVID in and if you're traveling around too much too regularly, you can be the carrier to other resorts and so forth. So it's something that you just got to have in the back of your mind. Yeah. I looked into it. We can podcast in person. It's just getting there is hard (laughs) with a three-week-old baby and everything that's going on. So, And, and mate, we're we're incredibly lucky. And thank you to everybody, the Patreon supporters, because here we are. There's almost no sound difference, everything. We've got the full setup at my place as well as at your place so that we can continue to bring out the show you know, largely uninterrupted, even though we're not in the same place. Yeah, it really is a blessing that we have so many people that have been supporting us on Patreon and have continued to do so, even when there's a lot of people facing hardships. There was somebody the other day that sent me a private message just saying, hey, mate, I'm just letting you know that just while we're in lockdown, I probably just can't do the Patreon right now. And I said, don't even need to explain. There's no explanation necessary. Thank you yeah. for everything you've done. And they just said, oh, look, I'll just let you know. I'll bounce straight back as soon as I'm back at work and so forth. And I said, Again, no explanation necessary. This is generosity on your behalf and Pat and I appreciate it exponentially. So there is no expectation there, but very much appreciated. Thank you very much. It's absolutely amazing the level of support. And the other thing that's really amazing is that other people are reaching out to their friends and colleagues in the industry and saying, you know, like I'm really getting value out of this and there's some really great stuff on there. And it's just lovely the amount of industry appreciation that we're seeing. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm. People have got to stick together. But yeah, to reiterate that as well, like don't give us money if you're struggling for money. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Anyway, on with life, on Mm. with the podcast. On with the podcast. You have a topic. Yeah, I do. Something that I've had kind of swirling around in my head and wanted to do as a topic, and in full disclosure, I haven't completely thought this out. I've realized a lot of what I do is I think out loud on this podcast. So when you're listening to shows, don't get too invested in anything I say because it could be nonsense. I'm just thinking out loud. (laughs) But what I've been thinking about a little bit lately is when classical conditioning goes wrong Mm. because we always teach classical conditioning You know, as dog trainers, we think of it in terms of markers and commands and that kind of stuff. And we always talk about it in terms of this is what we do to control the dog to do something that we want. And classical conditioning, we think of it as a tool of our own. And it is for sure, right? But I think there's instances, and I wanted to discuss with you any times that you've identified it where, you know, classical conditioning is working against what we want, right? And here's one example that triggered me to think this way. Was I was talking to someone fairly recently who'd been bitten quite badly by their own dog. Mm. It was an IPO dog, an IGP dog, and they were doing some tug work. And long story short, they were convinced that the dog had bit them and that it was an aggressive response and the dog had bit them quite badly. It was a serious bite. And I wasn't so sure because the way that the bite went down and the tools that were used and the way they were used it, I was like, I'm pretty sure you just kicked the dog into like the bite came as a reflex response to a conditioned input, right? Because the dog's done a lot of bite work in a very similar picture. They were playing tug with the dog. The dog wasn't outing. They'd used the prong collar. And the way that they moved after this pop of the prong collar would look a lot like the way a helper would move. And you know what's common in some of the IGP training is to use a prong collar to solicit that aggression, right, in the bark and hold, right? So kind of nagging the dog to bring on the aggression in the bark and hold. And I was like, I think what has probably happened is that dog bit without even knowing it had bit. And it was a sustained bite, so it certainly knew eventually. But I think that what happened was the strike 
happened because the dog misinterpreted the situation. He got kind of confused about what was going on. And then that input of the pop with the prong collar with you moving backwards away is the exact picture that dog's seen plenty of times. That prong collar pops him into aggression in the picture of front on to someone. They were holding a big wedge, you know, like a speed sleeve kind of thing, close enough to being a sleeve, but had not was not holding that in the presentation on their left arm and got bitten on the left arm, like exactly like you would expect the dog to bite a helper. Mm. And they you know, caused all these mistrust issues and they had issues with the dog and we were having a long conversation about whether they would be able to keep the dog and even live with the dog because of that mistrust that had come. And it's hard because I wasn't there. It's a you know online conversation, but I was kind of leaning towards, I think it's cool. I think they're all fine. I think that everything is like you and the dog are okay. So long as you can get over this, then that's another story. That's a different avenue we have to walk down. But I think what happened was not the dog biting you. The dog was biting and he would have bit whatever was in his way at that moment because you have taught him to do that. Yeah, these situations are really difficult. I know that we've described them and discussed them as reflex behaviours in the past. And that's the problem with them is that they do become very reflexive. And Mm. it's somewhat, you know, when things do become reflex, it's somewhat out of your control when something stimulates you and your brain kicks into gear and says, do it. And that's the trouble with things where the dog has learned to bite through reflex. I had a very similar situation. What spurred this is when you messaged me last night and said, I've got a topic, let's talk about classical conditioning going wrong. And it reminded me of something in my childhood. There's components of operant conditioning in this as well. But I recall when I was a kid and I was probably about uh, between 10 and 12 at the time. We used to go away when I still lived in Melbourne. We used to go away to a place called Ocean Grove, which is down on like the Geelong sort of peninsula area. Lovely little place, good family holiday. We sort of had a friend's holiday house down there and it was my gran and my cousins and and family friends that used to come down there. And I remember they had this little dog called Monty. He was like a little silky terrier and Monty had come up and sit on the couch with everybody while we were watching TV together as a family. And every single night, when my uncle used to get up, every single time this dog would start growling. It was yeah. the minute he got up, the dog would start growling. The first time I saw this phenomenon take place, I said, what's happening here? And my cousin Max said to me, oh, he knows that dad's going to put him away for the night. And I said, so this is a normal ritual? And he said, yeah. And I, I mean, I really didn't know anything about dog training at all. I was just a kid. I was actually a little intimidated and scared because this dog was, you know, like baring its teeth and starting to snarl. And then my auntie came out with a blanket to wrap the dog up in because this was a normal procedure that the dog went through. So as I'm saying, I know that some of it was operant, but, you know, like as soon as my uncle got up and because he got up in a particular fashion, the dog reflexively started growling straight away, you know? So there was some part of it that was classical and other parts of it that were operant. But the dog was practically asleep when he got up. But as soon as he as soon as he rose, it started snarling straight away. And it would do it every yeah. night. We kind of got to a point where we laughed about it because it was just like the normal sort of routine that my uncle would get up, my auntie come out with a blanket, they throw it over the dog, wrap him up and take him outside. And he'd settle down. And you'd look at it now through the eyes of a dog trainer and you'd be in absolute disgust that this behavior was yeah. allowed to continue like that. Like it's horrifying. That's horror, yeah. Yeah, and that's the epitome of everything that we're trying to work against. But back then, 
there wasn't all this advice around. There wasn't the reach of the internet. In situations like that, you'd either ignore the dog or you'd put it to sleep. That was the way yep. that things like that were dealt with. But, I mean, Monty was tiny. Like, he was a tiny, tiny little dog. And the way to resolve that was, I mean, every other time, like 99% of his life, he was a pleasant little dog. Apart from yeah. he didn't want to go outside at nights because he knew this whole routine. It had become very conditioned in the behavior of the dog. So, yeah. you know, I understand that people do things like this. I mean, the normal, the absolute default normal behavior that most people do with classical conditioning, and this is something that I've talked about with clients and students and fellow trainers pretty much all my life, is we classically condition to a walking lead, you know, which is a bit yeah. of material that the dog has absolutely no concept of whatsoever until it starts to realize that this you know, like this item that I probably at one time found aversive leads to walking and reinforcement. So you only have to touch this thing or gesture towards it and the dog instantly snaps into that reflexive, I'm going for a walk, I'm going for a walk, I'm going for a walk, I'm going for a walk. And they get very excited. Whereas, you know, this is what we actually get called into homes for is I can't control my dog when we're about to go for a walk. It jumps around, it knocks me into the wall it pulls me all over the place. It runs, does zoomies all around the house because the dog is literally in that classical mode of thinking. And as I said, mm. you know, I know that operant conditioning oozes its way in and out through this because the two yeah, of the those, two of yeah, right. they have a symbiotic relationship. The two of them, they occupy very similar space, even though there's componentry of each other that's slotted in there. But you still have to acknowledge the problem with the classical side of it when it it does become reflex. Yeah, totally. I think with classical conditioning, you know, I think that there's kind of two ways to think of it, or there's two ways that it really manifests. And I think one of those is like a this leads to that learning, where I'd say that's how dogs learn all the time is they just see the pattern and mm. they go, okay, this happens, then that happens, then that happens, and and. And that's, you know, for the most part, how most people are using classical conditioning and that's how they're training dogs to do anything. You know, the dog realizes you lure me into the sit position and then I get food and then you say the, you say the word and then you lure me into, and like the dog's really aware of what's going on and they just lead, like they just understand one thing leads to the next thing. And there's, a, there is a fair amount of thought involved in that. And then those emotions and whatever that come from it, like you're talking about there with the dog sees the lead. Mm. And he knows that means we're going for a walk. And then he's just, you know, he's excited. And it's not necessarily that it's outside of his control. He's excited. He is doing, he's very in control of himself. And he's choosing in that moment to be excited because he sees you pick up the lead and now we're going for a walk. So I think that's one way classical conditioning sort of manifests and we see that all the time. And the other is the true reflex where it's outside the control. And I don't know that we see a lot of that. Like I strive for it in some instances. And I certainly, you know, certainly in my markers with a young dog that I'm teaching things to, I want a a true reflex. I don't want the dog having to think about things. I want that from my out as much as possible. I want a true reflex in my out rather than the dog thinking, yeah, you're telling me to let go of this. And I think there's like, that's a really interesting, the reflex versus the understanding of this leads to that. Mm. Yeah. There would be times when I want one and there's times when I want another Something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately is markers, like reflex responses that announce the release of negative reinforcement versus announces the production of positive reinforcement. It's something I think about all the junk science that we see, right? Like all the, yeah, they're they're doing studies. Someone releases a study into 
Like, is a clicker better than a verbal marker versus no marker? And yeah, when that study came out of like a couple months ago, I stopped reading it like halfway through. I was like, this is the biggest load of shit. This is so like blind Freddy can see where this is going. <laughs> this is not valuable information. Like I don't, like from most of those kind of studies, I don't think there's anything valuable that has come of that. Nobody I know who's a good dog trainer spoke about that as going, oh, this is interesting new information that we now have confirmation on, right? In fact, the opposite. What I would love to see, and I don't know whether this exists, but certainly I have not, is some way of measuring the efficacy and the power of a marker that announces the release of negative reinforcement versus a marker that announces the availability of positive reinforcement. Mm. Have, are you aware of anything like that? I, I've, again, I'm thinking out loud, that might exist, but I would love to see it. I think probably the best person that we'd probably need to resource on that would be Joe Rosie. She's probably been all over that and consumed every bit of advice on that. Yeah, if, if it existed, she would have read it. Mm. I'd have to shoot her a message because like, that's interesting to me. And, and the reason I was thinking about it the other day was I have that sauna at my house, right? I mean, that sauna every day and I, that's where I meditate and I can get pretty deep. Like I can get pretty deep into meditation in there. And when it, it's got, it's on a timer and it turns itself off at the 20 minute and it beeps. And the other day I was Gornsky, right? Like I was really down the tube <laughs> of meditation. I was outside my body. But that beep brings me out of it because it's torture in there, right? Like it's horrific. I've been in there, you know, 40 minutes or whatever, cooking myself at 65 degrees Celsius. I was almost kind of unaware of my body. I was meditating and then you hear that beep and it pulls me straight out of it. And what I noticed was I immediately just pushed the door to the sauna open because that's the reflex response that comes from that beep. Like that beep, that there's, I don't encounter it anywhere else. It's a you know, particular beep that only happens in that sauna and it causes me to push the door open. And it is the relief of negative reinforcement. That is that's exactly what that beep announces to me. It's time to get out of the sauna. And trust me, it's torturing there. I want out, right? And so I was thinking, I wonder how, like that's a powerfully ingrained reflex response in me. And I have a few powerfully ingrained reflex responses. One of them, I don't know if I ever told you about this. I, I usually teach it sometimes in seminars when a friend of mine held up two glow sticks in the car. Have I ever told you about that? Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Like, like before you get out of a helicopter, if you're flying at night, like into get dropped off into wherever you're going, if or not an admin move, like to, if you're going into actually do cool guy stuff in the army, they give you a two minute warning and they give you a 30 second warning. And if it's at night, they hold up two glow sticks, like in separate hands and say two minutes. And that's how you can see, okay, two minutes, start getting your helmet and all that kind of bullshit on. Then the 30 second warning is they hold up both those glow sticks together in the same hand. And you can see that. And that means like unstrop, get ready to run out. You're off to go do stuff. And you immediately adrenalize because, you know, God knows what you're going to do at that moment. Now, I haven't done that in a long ass time. <laughs> I am not. I have not done any cool guy stuff out of a helicopter in a long, long, long time. And a couple of years ago, back when we could, it was like probably two years ago at the Vivid Sydney Festival, we were driving home. It's a light festival, right? So there's glow sticks and bullshit everywhere. And it's a whole light show and the whole lot. We were coming home and I was with a friend of mine who I was in the army with, and it was probably 10 PM at night. And I'm like half asleep in the back of the car and Rip was asleep and his wife was driving. 
And we pull into my street, he's going to drop us off. And he turns around with two glow sticks in his hand as we pull into my street. He just looks at me with the two glow sticks because we've got them from the light show and goes 30 seconds. And I had this immediate adrenaline dump. Like I was immediately super adrenalized. And I looked at him, I was like, you jackass. Like it's 10 p.m. at night. I got to go home (laughs) and go to bed. And you're just got this conditioned response in me to be super adrenalized. But that's literally, that's years since I've actually done that for real. Mm. And it caused a, a really powerful reflex response that's outside of my control. So that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about when you see, I think sometimes that we see that in dogs where they react in, in a, a really powerful manner, but is outside of their control. Now, like I say, we spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time trying to put that into dogs for certain things. I want that in certain places. I go out of my way to make sure it is happening in certain places. But I think sometimes the problem behaviors that we see or quite dangerous behaviors, or, you know, it could even be just, you know, incidental behaviors, things that don't matter one way or another. They can be just conditioned reflexes that the dog's not necessarily in control of. And if you were to use punishment, or if you were to try and use differential reinforcement, you may not be as effective as if you just then tried to counter condition instead. Because you, once you identify, oh, that's just a reflex response. You have no intent behind what you're doing there. You don't want that to happen. You don't feel a certain way beyond what the reflex is making you feel. Then the treatment of that would be very different. It would be counter conditioning rather than hey, saying like, hey, you can't do that. Because when you're going to tell a dog, hey, you can't do that, that usually relies on a level of the dog wanting to do it to bother going down that route. Or being right? conscious about or, it. Yeah, being conscious to do it because mm. you're not going to – like no amount of punishment after, if it's a true reflex, is going to stop that reflex, right? Like it's still going to be there. So it's like a counter condition where we go like, hey, I'm going to take that reflex away. I'm going to expose you to it without the outcome that you expect to come of that until – it goes away and and god knows how many reps that could take and it depends on how ingrained depends on the behavior depends on how well ingrained it is in the dog in that situation and the condition under which it is solicited mm. yeah i remember watching andrew dice clay doing an interview it was totally unrelated to anything dog training he was just talking about comedy or, or a show he was doing and he was sitting there smoking an e-cigarette and he, like he'd take a puff and he put it down And it wasn't a true e-cigarette because the guy goes, oh, you're trying to give up smoking. And he said, oh, no, this has got nothing in it at all. He said, all it does is makes the sound and has a little glow at the end. He said, because I've been doing this all my life. And he said, you know, like if I stop doing this, I'll I'll miss it and I'll want to take up cigarette smoking again. And he said, so Mm. this is me basically, you know, he didn't use the word, but he said, this is me kind of conditioning myself to stop the, the habit of this reflex behavior that I've had for all, pretty much all my life of putting something in my mouth, taking a drag and putting it down again. He said, this is the way I'm training myself out of wanting to have a cigarette. And he said it because the guy said, Oh, it's, you know, how long is this going on for? And he goes, Oh, it's been forever. And he said, but this is helping me. And he said, you know, through all the therapy I'm having to try and reverse the effect of it. This is taking away the desire to want to actually do it. Like I'm doing it less and less and less. So it's interesting what, people actually have to go to to deactivate that reflex response that you've been doing for a long time. I mean, I know other people who have been, I I know know there's levels of addiction and nicotine and so forth. So there is a variance there, but I mean, conditioning and behaviors are still very addictive themselves sometimes. And I know other people who for years they've been, they make a cup of coffee and have a cigarette at that time. And that the literal stimuli of making a cup of coffee and sitting down with that would invoke the cravings of wanting a cigarette. 
What it didn't happen at any other time of day, other than I remember my mum saying that when she used to smoke, she used to be an avid smoker, and she used to say having a cup of coffee was the hardest thing because that would make me want to light up a cigarette. Just that, the the cup of coffee. I think there's a lot of power in ritual. Yes, yes. Um, It's like this is what we do. I'm very comfortable doing it. Even you see people and dogs get into rituals that are not pleasant and Mm. that they don't enjoy but there's safety and comfort in the ritual, right? So they do it because it, you know, to break it would be more uncomfortable than to not, even though what they do is unpleasant. And that's one of the things that I see with e-collars, especially you see dogs that have had a bad experience with the e-collar, maybe poor use of it. You know, there could be lots of reasons why. Sometimes changing the location of the e-collar on the dog can radically change everything because it's not even the stim that is the issue for the dog. It can be the ritual of putting it on. And you see that in dogs, right? Like, you know, when, you know, this is one of the things that kind of upsets me when people say, oh, all I have to do is show him the e-collar and he behaves himself. I'm like, yeah, that's not a good thing, right? Mm. (laughs) Like, you know, that's like, that's not, that tells me that you've badly used the e-collar and that the dog didn't understand the relationship of you not wanting him to do the behavior, that means he only understood that he shouldn't do pretty much anything when he's got that e-collar on, right? And I think that's a really common thing. We don't see that in the like from dog trainers, but from the average pet dog owner, I see that with bark collars. You know, a lot of people say, all I have to do is show the dog the bark collar and he shuts up. And it's like, yeah, he does shut up, but not because he knows he shouldn't bark. It's because he knows that he shouldn't express any drive, mm. right? Like you're not being very clear with him. But yeah, so to what I was saying, the ritual of putting it on can be the issue. And if you can break that ritual, then sometimes you can start fresh with a tail strap or a chest strap or, or even a different type of e-collar that goes on differently, puts putting in a different location can completely change sometimes, not all the time, but it can completely change the feelings that the dog has around it because you haven't satisfied that ritual. You haven't gone like, here's the process of me putting this on and that makes you feel a certain way. When it goes on a different place, the dog's like, oh, this is not the same thing to me. Mm. Well, this is an interesting discussion in itself, and it reminds me of a conversation we were having with an NDTF group at one stage, because we were talking about how do you identify operant versus classical? I said, generally, when you stop to consider your choices, you're very operant about that because you're thinking about the pros and cons about, you know, if I do this, what's the benefit to me and what's the payoff versus what's the punishment that I'll, or how will I perceive punishment? So you can conjure up a thought process of, I've got a choice to do it whether or not, and then there will be consequences for it versus where if it's classical or Pavlovian, whatever word you want to use, you're very much a slave to the response because you you somewhat can't help it, and that's where you, it's dubbed the reflexive behaviour. And we were showing, yeah. you know, it just it so happened that very day that Kristen walked in with Blue, and Blue was running along, and just as she was running along, the students were watching her running around in the shed, and as she was doing that, Kristen clicked the clicker, and she literally skidded and fell over. Like she just, you know, she was just going about her business, not even thinking about anything. She hit the clicker and the dog went skid. She literally slid over and then got to her feet and ran straight back. And I said, that's truly classical when you can see that. I said, you can see her body literally, like her brain locked up her whole body. She came to a skid and then scrambled back for the reinforcement. You know, and I said the reinforcement yeah. itself is is an operant part of it, that, but that response that you just witnessed from the dog where her whole body, like her brain said, stop, it's not conscious that the dog is doing that. Like who slides to a stop to fall over and then have to scramble back? If it was operant, you'd probably find that the dog would stop, turn around and go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, there's something in that for me. Whereas with that response 
was truly reflexive. It was beautiful. You couldn't have timed it better. Yeah. For me, this might not be scientifically accurate. It probably is pretty close, but my brain works in flow charts, right? That's kind of how I see everything. And for me to go through the gate of being a classical response, it first has to be outside of the control of the dog. And by that, I don't mean necessarily the response that the dog gives. I mean the ability to prompt it. Mm. So that dog can't click the clicker. Like if you see a dog that finds a clicker and then clicks it itself, now that's totally an operant process. Mm. But if the dog is running around and he can do nothing to prompt the clicker, he can only find behaviors, then he's being operant. But his reaction to the clicker, he can't start that. He can't do it. So that's a classical response. Mm. So that's how I think about it. Like when you're not in control of the start point, that's classical because then you're reacting after that. So that's the gate to make it a classical response. And then that branches into two sections where it can be a, a true reflex where you're not in control of what happens afterwards. You're just going to react the way that you have been programmed to do so. Mm. And the other is you know, like a non-reflexive classical response, which is you know, what I was talking about before. I'd say uh, this leads to that. And I think we see both and you're dead right when you that classical conditioning and operant conditioning are so intertwined. And, you know, for the most part, dog training is, I think it's like layering a classical response over an operant behavior. For the large, you know, that's exactly what I want to try and achieve with all the behaviors that my dog can do or, or any dog can do is I want them to be very operant in the process of learning it. I want them to feel very in control. And, you know, I think that's one of the things with classical conditioning as well is you lose control. Like you're, you can't start it. You can't make it happen. It just happens. And then the sequence unfolds after that. That's a classical sequence. So I want to avoid too much influence from a classical trigger in the learning phase for my dog, because I want my dog to be quite operant in the learning phase. I want the dog going like, hey, I'm making decisions and those decisions have consequences. There's consequences for action, positive and negative, and there's consequences for inaction, positive and negative. And then once he's beginning to understand the behavior and it doesn't have to be finished, but as long as it's sort of on the way to being what I want in the end, that's when I then go like, here is a signal that announces the availability of that sequence that you've learned. And I put that in front of the, the operant behavior so that my classical trigger, now at this point it's a command, becomes the, the thing that is outside the control of the dog that then leads to that what was previously operant process now becomes a classical process where the dog just goes through the steps. Mm. And as I say, that can have two ways. Maybe the dog's really aware where he's like, okay, you told me to do this. I will do this, then this, then this. And that leads to a reinforcement. That's why I'll do it. Or he might say, you told me to do this. And in order to avoid a punishment that I know that I, I want to avoid, that's why I'll do these things or choose not to do something. You know, there could be lots of things going through the dog's head. But in that first instance, he's thinking and he's going, okay, like the first trigger came, the classical, whatever it is, the, what's the right word for that? The classical input, the classical signal, the signal, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's probably the word. The signal was given. And now I choose to have this sequence of events unfold because the outcome will be beneficial to me. Now, whether that's getting something he wants or avoiding something he wants to avoid, that doesn't matter, but that's how it unfolds. The other way is that the, the signal happens, and this is exactly 
what you were talking about with blue there, where there is no thought process. It's halfway through the dog's like, oh, what the fuck is happening here, right? Like I've, I've, I'm suddenly doing something that I had no intention of doing. I didn't choose to do this. I might be really happy with having done it or I might be pissed off that I've even done it, but it's happening nonetheless. And then one of the interesting things I think with reflexes is, and I'm sure we've spoken about this before, is they can be kind of overridden to the point where they're not noticeable. So it, it's there, but so like with your, say, patella tendon reflex, if your knee's hanging, if you're sitting on a bench and I hit you on that patella tendon, your leg's going to pop out. That's going to happen. You can't stop it. It's going to happen. But if I forewarn you and you know exactly that it's going to come and I hit you on there, it's still going to happen and you want it not to happen, right? So I tell you, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to hit you on your patella tendon reflex. You don't want your leg to fly out the way that it did on the last rep. Try as you might it's still going to happen, but nowhere near as much. Like there's going to be just a, the tiniest little movement because you'll be able to overcome that. You'll be able to counteract it with your other muscles that can keep that, that leg in place. And I think that's what we sometimes see with classical, like true reflex behaviors is that they can still be overcome. That reflex can be overcome in, a, in an instant so quickly that you never even got to see that it happened. And for me, this is what I talk about. Like I'm a, I'm a great big wuss. Like you scare me, I'll freak out. I'll run away. I, that my, my fight or flight is flight. That is what I do. I scream and throw my gun in the air and te- be terrified. But through training, I can overcome that to the point where you don't see it, right? It's still there. I feel it, but it's not noticeable because I can go cognitive very, very quickly. And that's through training. So that's a tool to keep in the back pocket. When you see in a dog a, a, a reflex response, you can out-train a reflex response. You can counter-condition it for sure, but you can out-train it and give the dog an alternate thing to do that he will have to make a decision about. But if it's worth it for him, he'll be able to do it, right? Like the reflex will still happen, but it can be overcome very, very quickly. The example I always use of that is my dog has a reflex response to the clicker. It's a true reflex, Right. And, you know, there's a video of this I put online a long time ago, but I, he had his ball in his mouth and I'm trying to offer him food and he doesn't want to take it. Mm. He, you know, he's not going to trade the ball for food. And then I click and you can see he reacts. He reacts to the click, but he overcomes that reflex of the click before his teeth travel far enough to get out of the ball, right? So, like, it's one of those foam, durafoam balls. His teeth, are, you know, both canines have penetrated it. Now he's got to open his mouth a full inch to get off of that before he takes the food. And you can see when I click, his canines nearly clear the ball before he goes, oh, what am I doing? I don't want to do that. And he bites back into the, the ball. So that's my example of, you know, like sometimes those reflex responses, even when you have them and you've done all the work and you've ingrained it in the dog, the dog might overcome that reflex before the behavior is finished completing because he's he's motivated elsewhere and he realizes the payment isn't there for me or the benefit isn't there for me that I, I want to continue doing what I'm doing. I'm going to overcome the reflex that is potentially stopping me. Mm. Yeah, that's a truly interesting observation. <laughs> there have been times in situations like that and I think you and I have probably been in the same room when this has occurred where you'll use a clicker or a cue to get the dog to out with something. And if it's been trained truly reflexively, the dog might let it go, but then catch it in midair again because it's thinking, oh, what the fuck am I doing? You know, like, why would I drop that? I wanted that. Like, I worked so hard to get it. And that sort of defies what you were trying to teach in the dog at the time. So, you know, those sort of those sort of situations 
aren't the best when the dog can suddenly re-reinforce itself again through its actions of, you know, dropping it and then going straight down for it again. Whereas an intelligent trainer would understand that, okay, this is going to happen. And if I do mark and I want the dog to immediately reflexively out on this situation, I've got to prevent the dog from being able to reach it again, you know, and and work towards what I've got. And then I can show the dog, great, now you can have it again because you've done the behavior that I wanted, you know, and simply transfer something that's been reflexive into operant. So the dog can then, as you said, and I think you eloquently placed it before, is that you do want your dog to be in a better position to start making good life choices that are mm. that are on the path of being parallel to the life that you're living with the dog. Because then, yeah. then the dog truly starts to understand, this is how I start to live my best life. Like my best life is living in parallel with yours. And that doesn't mean that we've enslaved the dog or anything that's so repugnant like that. It simply means that the dog finally has a good, what would you call it when you're learning a language? When you're, It's more about inclusion and it's more about clear understanding, clear guidelines of what the law of the land is effectively between you and the dog. So then the dog isn't at odds with you or it doesn't feel like it's misplaced in its world. It clearly has and it's become transformative in a new language, a new operating system, if you like, that the dog sees this situation and goes, man, this works for me. Like, I totally get you. Whereas things have been grey in the past, you know, that's normal for puppies or new dogs that have entered the household, the dog goes, I totally get you, man. You know, when you and I come out onto this field, I understand what you want. And that's, I guess that's responsive when you start seeing things like people who achieve very good results in trials with their dogs. Like the dog totally gets them. That's why the dog is able to complete things with such accuracy because the training has conditioned the dog to understand every sort of cue and every sort of involvement with the dog. Like there's no second guessing going on with those dogs. And if there is, it's just a matter of going back to the drawing board and understanding, okay, there's a breakdown in the way that I'm trying to communicate with this dog. You know, like I've said there to the dog and asked the dog to spell it to me, but the dog's given me the wrong type of spelling. That's my fault because I haven't explained that well enough to the dog. What I have to do yeah. is I have to break that down to the dog that instead of saying T-H-E-R-E, I'm saying T-H-E-I-R. It's yeah. the same way of saying it, but it's a different meaning and a different application. So what I need to do to the dog is say, okay, here it is as best as I can describe this to you. This is the best way that we can accurately get this to understand together. So now that you do understand it, now we can become more complete and now become closer in that parallel that we're trying to create together. That's a great analogy. I'm going to steal that. I'll give you a dollar every time I do. Thanks, man. Hey, um, I just, want to, I just want to circle back. Yeah, it's one of the ones that I think of because of when you're looking at people that are international and they're talking about how complicated English can be because there's so many similar words that are uh, that are pronounced exactly the same way. I'm homeschooling and teaching a six-year-old to read right now. And yeah. it's, you don't realize how stupid a lot of the English rules are until you try and teach them to someone who doesn't know them at all. And he's like, but why does that make that sound here and that sound here? It's the exact same thing. I'm like, I know there is no, there is no pattern to follow there. I'm sorry. You just have to learn that word. And then that word, I apologize. (laughs) That's the trials and tribulations that a lot of dog owners go through with their dogs is because we've learned to do things 
in the form of humanity. And that's what we're trying to do to their dogs. We're basically, this is the frustration of new dog owners where they call a professional to come and help them is because they get this dog and go, understand me, damn you. You don't get me. And the dog's being like I tell people, it's just being default dog. And the dog's just sitting there going, I'm a dog, dude. Yeah. This, this is my world. This is very anthropomorphic what we're saying here because the dogs don't analyze it to this level, but they're just non-responsive to what you want because there is no real benefit in there for them at, at this point in time because they just don't understand it. They just don't get it. We haven't created any long-term or even short-term conditioning at this point in time. It's just gibberish to the dog. And that's why a lot of people struggle with their relationship with the dogs. And there is no parallel relationship between dog and owner because they're basically saying, well, I'm the human, I'm the Lord of the manor. You have to understand me in order to live in my house. But you've given the dog no fucking opportunity to do so. Yeah. While we're on this subject, I did want to travel back in time to part of the conversation that you were having before about you being in your infrared sauna. Yeah. When you're in there, do you experience flow state? Yeah. Yeah, I can. Yeah. I was thinking about that a lot of the times because I was thinking, you know, it seems like when you're in there, you're sort of transforming through time and, you know, like. (laughs) It's an important part of my ritual. I've had that thing 12 months now. I almost, yeah, pretty much spot on 12 months and I use it not quite every day, but pretty close. And it's been a huge thing. And, and for anyone listening, you're imagining like, Oh, Pat, you fancy man with your sort it's a tiny wooden box that's tucked into the corner of my garage, right? Like it's not like it's not like a sauna at a resort where you go to and you're imagining, you know, <laughs> ten people can sit in there and and we're Russian mobsters and we're sitting around with our tattoos on our knees and, and big and gold chains. <laughs> like that. To me, I have to climb into this tiny little wooden box that is tucked in the corner of my garage. So like, yeah, that's the reality of the situation, but it's amazing. And because I, I'm into sort of optimization a little bit and I like to fuck with my body, you know, and do you know, experiment with it and that kind of stuff. I, I've also done so many other things and I'm, I'm training on and off and I change diets and that kind of stuff. So I can't really give you any good metrics on like the, I, can't, I have no evidence for the benefits, right? Like I don't have any markers against it because I've done so many other things in parallel and at the same time that I don't know which one works, but I can tell you it feels really it feels good to me. It feels very important to me. Physically, it feels really good. Well, no, it physically, it feels terrible. But afterwards, I feel very good. I feel very energized. Helps me sleep quite a lot because I think falling asleep has a lot to do with temperature drops, like your body needs to drop temperature. And that you can create that artificially by increasing your temperature and then just dropping back to what it normally would be. So I use it you know, mostly at night before I go to bed and not right before I go to bed. What I do is like rip goes, to, I put rip to bed, then I go down and I'm in the sauna and then I'm super productive for about an hour, hour and a half afterwards, like you know, the best version of myself. But I, I, because it's quite horrible being in there, I take it as an opportunity to meditate in there. And so because you, for me, it gives me feedback as to when I'm aware of myself. The type of meditation I want to do is like, you know, being outside of my own experience and thoughts and that kind of stuff. Mm. I want to really try and clear my mind. And the negative reinforcement of the sauna gives you feedback as to when you're not doing that. So if you're noticing how hot and how uncomfortable it is, then you're not, I'm, if I'm noticing that, then I'm not in that flow state as you're talking about. But if I can meditate in there and I, you know, just write it out and then it's that, that I think it, 
that conditioned response of the beep at the end of it was ingrained before I knew how to write it out so well and how to meditate so well in there that it lasts, it persists through now that like, as I say, I can be totally unaware of the time, have no idea how long I've been in there. Mm. It used to be that I you know, had a pretty good sense of time, but now I listen to binaural beats kind of stuff while I'm in there and that is on a loop and it's a fairly short loop. So I don't have any sense of where I'm at in that song. You know, like if you listen to music, then that gives you a, a reference point and you can be like, oh, okay, it's been three songs or whatever. That's, you know, 15 minutes or something like that. Whereas if you listen to those meditation tracks that really don't have, they're on a short loop and you really can't even necessarily pick up the beginning and the end. So you don't have a reference point. So that's kind of all, that's all the auditory input. I use noise canceling things. So I can't hear anything else. I wear a blindfold. It's not a blindfold, but it's like a sweatband kind of thing, but I pull it over my eyes to stop the sweat getting in my eyes. And so I can't see either. So I'm really, I'm in the sensory deprivation. Mm. It's been a big part. Like for me, people are probably listening saying, shut up, Pat. No one gives a fuck about your sauna. But for me, it's been a big part of it. And it's where I think it's where I go in there and I really think about this kind of shit. And it's where I unravel and unpack things and that kind of stuff. And it like, it, it's important to me. And like I say, I have a hard time doing that absent being in the sauna because there's so many other inputs and there's other things going on and there's other things that are uh, vying for my attention. Whereas when I'm in there, it's, you know, that's my hour of the day or however long I'm in there for. That's my, that's my period of time where I'm off. Like there's, you can't contact me. I'm gone ski. There's no way to interfere in that space with me at that time. I can't hear anything. I can't see anything. I'm just sort of in a, in a flow state, as you say. And I feel like it's been extremely beneficial to me. But like I say, I don't have anything I can, there's no evidence of that other than me saying how I feel. I can't produce any data on it. Yeah, I think it's an important awareness to be in. My form of meditation these days is playing guitar, obviously. And there are times, like I set aside an hour a night just to go in there and go through a lesson plan or just do some noodling around on the guitar and so forth. There are literally times where I've been in there over the hour and it seems like I've been in the room for five minutes where there's other times, as you were suggesting before, where, you know, like I'm aware of how uncomfortable the stool is and my legs falling asleep and so forth. And that's because I'm not really into the session. I'm not enjoying myself. But when, when I've truly entered that state, I've been in states like that where I've started training dogs before where I'm in a, and that is where I'm really reaching those parallels with the dog. And there was a tie in for all this, but you don't seem to be aware of time. Like time doesn't seem so linear and so obvious to you. Like your surroundings sort of disappear and you melt into this melting pot of, I'm very much in the moment and I'm very lost in time doesn't seem very relevant to you. Whereas when you are really aware of those sort of things, you're not really truly meditative. And I agree with you. I think that the time that you spend in your sauna, I know that you and I've had discussions about this in the past. So it's a very interesting conversation to me because I know that when you're dwelling on a subject and you really don't have conclusion to the answer, you've spent a couple of nights in there and you've suddenly emerged with you know, a new line of thinking and you're quite excited about, you know, like this new conclusion that you've come to and it, and it feels so right to you because you've really meditated on it and you've had, you know, a really strong connection to resolving the problem and the problem is sort of not so much just, un, well, it kind of has, I guess. It's kind of resolved itself. Like, you know, the simplicity of the answer was there all along. It's just that you needed to unclutter your mind to actually reach it. 
And I know that we've, you know, we've tried to convince people that we're not getting into deep spiritualism, but the problem, (laughs) (laughs) the problem with a lot of these things is sometimes the answer really is that obvious. Like it's sitting there and it's like, it's sitting within the grasp. It's almost in the palm of your hand, but you're so preoccupied with everything else that's happening within the world that you're not really focusing on the solution. You're more consumed with what the problem is. Yeah. Speaking to dog owners and uh, even, you know, like just even in the times that I've been working with some of the people online, like listening to them, talking to me, I said, you've actually talked about the solution, but you're just not aware of it. You've literally told me yeah. what the solution is, but you're so focused on the negativity that's shrouding that, that you can't see clearly what the solution is. Because all I'm doing is saying, there's a solution. That's what you need to do. They kind of look at you with that raised eyebrow going, really? It's that simple? And I said, that's not the conclusion to it. This is threading into it. And this is the path that you now must walk. But that's what you've now got to focus on. You know, I said, it's easy for me to look at it because I'm the second set of eyes. I'm the person who is listening to what is aggravating you. And I can see how that has spiraled out of control slightly. And that has developed this new psyche that you're developing around the problem and the, and the you know, the annoyance you're having for the dog based on all of these other compounding effects. But here is the solution. And you have mentioned it, but it just wasn't so obvious. There are moments that I think we need to sit on a little bit more. I think the juvenile mind that you have in adolescence before you really develop that better developed prefrontal cortex, that impulsive side of you, you don't see things as clearly as you should. And I think that people that do do that when they're still young, they're wise beyond their years. Like it could be a genetic thing. It could be that they're just more balanced, that they don't have a lot of, you know, like they've had probably a better life with more cream in it. Yeah. And it's an interesting concept as I go through life and I talk to people and I think about my own ebbs and flows throughout my own creativity or the things that prevent me from being creative those sort of things trigger more thoughts in my head about how could I be better centered and how could I feel better about this situation or how could I improve where I am and what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. That whole how you approach your own meditative and and guiding thoughts and even, you know, like having conversations with Birdie, I think her ongoing explanation is how to help people reach that better and how to find that peace within themselves because really it is peaceful. It's peaceful for you when you can better conclude something and you can better connect those dots that you've really been struggling trying to place them all together because not only does that help you but it also helps the dog, you know, the dog in your lifestyle because now when you're at peace with yourself and you know thyself better – I keep coming back to that saying, it's so simple, those three words, know thyself. And when you really think about the collaboration of that, that helps everyone in your life and everything in your life because, you know, everything that's been trapping you and stopping you from moving forward starts to fall away. And the world, instead of becoming so complicated and so inaccessible, things start to evolve to a point of access. Yeah, I agree. One of the big things I've gotten from it, and to really, this does tie back into everything that we've been saying, so stick with us, guys. Mm. (laughs) A big part of the type of meditation I do is to really try hard to understand people's points of view, especially when someone does something that I necessarily 
don't necessarily agree with or don't like or whatever. And I try really hard to understand like what would drive them to that point and try and empathize like really in the true sense of the word, like try and put myself in that position and understand, would I make that same decision in that? If the circumstances were the same for me, would I make that same decision? And I relate that to dogs because I, you know, half of what I'm thinking about is how I can coach people better and how I can be a better person with people and, but also how I can be more effective communicator with dogs. And to tie it into that classical conditioning piece, like I teach and I really harp on and, you know, if people look at my, you know, if you've ever been to a seminar, look at the online course or that kind of stuff, there's, I really teach that that reflex response is something to strive for. And I'm big on markers and the way that I use them is very specific. And I don't, I don't require anybody to use them the same way I do, but I do require people to use them with the same efficacy I do. So you don't have to have the same markers and they don't have to mean the same thing. You don't have to use them for the same things I use them for, but your precision with them should be the same. But then that isn't an all the time thing. It's just to increase the quality of the communication that you can have with your learner. So for me, when I'm starting with a new dog, that's why I spend so much time just setting up the markers that I will use. And if you watch me train with my two dogs currently, Valerie, I can say anything at any point. It's like she's a mind reader, right? But she's watched me train that many dogs because she's always out that she picks up on all the markers. She knows like every dog I've ever had that's had different marker systems or that I've trained, she knows them all. She knows all the commands of every dog and she can do the, like her variant of the behavior from mimicry of what she's seen. She's like, I, I know I've seen other dogs do this and it lead to reinforcement. I'll do it. Right. And to the point where I can't even, a lot of the times I can't remember what her commands are, like her own ones that are the best version of a lot of behaviors because she'll do it for you know, whatever command I give. But then even with say Remy now at nearly five years old, I can be so sloppy. I can make mistakes. I can gesture to him. I can use the wrong marker. I can do all kinds of stuff because he, he's not learning anything new. Now, when I'm teaching something new, I have to be very precise. And I think there's this relationship between clear communication and relationship-based training. And for me, you know, in the past, I've never really bothered explaining much of the relationship-based stuff because the people that were coming to me are more at the point where I think they will benefit more from classical responses from their dog. And that will create the gateway that relationship will go through. Right. So I think for me anyway, when you start focusing on like, oh, I'm going to work with the dog and we're going to do this together and, you know, relationship based stuff right from the get go, I feel like sometimes the relationship can be quite forced and not pleasant for the dog because the dog is really just looking for clear communication. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, every dog trainer has this same story where you, know, you could steal anyone's dog. You know, you go to someone's house and it's the first time you've been to their house and they've got a dog. You're not there to train it. You're just there. And within a few minutes of being in their house, it's like, it's your dog. They're with you nonstop. They're following you around that. You know, you haven't trained them to do anything, but they just identify with you as a person they want to be around. And that's because you're able to communicate with the dog. I'm not sloppy with any of my communications with the dog in the early phase. In the early phase, everything I do, no matter it's whether it's a dog I meet on the street or a dog I intend to train to a very high level, I'm very precise in the way that I communicate with the dog. And that leads to an element of clarity that gives comfort, I think. And that's the same with people. When you can provide that huge element of clarity, like, oh, I know, I know how to, and, and I'm a balanced trainer and will be forever. Well, that's a silly thing to say. I am with the information that I have currently a balanced trainer and 
am very comfortable in that position. I use the full spectrum of motivation and I don't see any fallout of the problems that come of using positive reinforcement or, 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 or negative reinforcement, negative punishment, positive punishment, the whole spectrum, because I'm very clear with the dogs and I go out of my way to do it. And my skills, my timing and all that kind of stuff is not exceptional. It's only okay. But what I put so much effort into is being clear with the dog. So the dog goes, right, I know how to get reinforcement. This guy, I don't have to solve the puzzle. All I have to do then is like solve the puzzle of the behaviors that will lead to it. But when he tells me this, I get that. And when he tells me don't, I don't, because I know that it leads to something and I can totally avoid that. Like it's that clarity. And once I have that, that's like 90% of it. And then the dog goes, hey, I like you because of the clarity that you have brought. You're consistent. I know where I stand with you. I know when I'm in trouble. I know when things are good. I know when I'm neutral. I know when I'm in, I know when I'm welcome. I know when I'm not. And dogs are hardwired to figure that shit out. They figure it out so quickly when you're precise that then the relationship comes for free right? Like you get that. So I don't, you know, put any time into working on it because it, it just happens. It just comes. And then once you have that, then you can start being a bit messy and it doesn't matter, right? You can start to, you know, use different commands or say different things. And so like, like I say, with my own two dogs at this point, especially with Remy, who's quite highly trained, I cannot give my commands. I can give these tiny little micro gestures and he knows what I want, right? Mm. I can be very, very cautious and freeze up and not give those micro gestures and just give the commands and he still knows what I want. Right. And so it's to the point where we're very engaged together. And because he spends his whole life, he's right there, right? Like he's right on the floor next to me. He's looking at me all the time trying to figure out where does he stand? And when I was super precise with that at the start, he's got the level, like he gets it now. And now I don't need to be so precise because he gets it and he's, everything is a minor deviation from what was once very clear. And I think that when you try it, when you're not as clear at the start and now the dog's got like, oh, well, you know, I've got maybe 10 ways I can tell Remy to get on and off the couch, right? And if you start with those 10, that's a disaster waiting to happen. There'll never be any clarity. But I start with one very specific way of doing everything. And then I, when he understands that, a minor deviation won't cause a problem. Mm. And then a minor deviation yeah. from that in the other direction also won't cause a problem. You end up with this beautiful relationship where the dog is just sort of in sync. And to, to, to your point on time and, and training and flow state and that kind of stuff, like absolutely – I get that with dogs, but very rarely early on because very early on, I'm so in my own head looking at the dog and trying to figure out and, and what spins your dials. Like it's very analytical and I'm trying to figure it out and I'm trying to develop a way to communicate with the dog. But once I know all that, that's when you can get into that flow state. And, you know, lately people are probably sick of me talking about it, but get ready because I'm going to go again. It's like I'm enjoying making these little reels and bullshit with my dog. But that's been interesting because it's been a long time since I've trained, I've filmed my own training, right? And now I'm back to filming it and filming almost every session or not, almost, but a lot of the sessions. Filming has the interesting side effect of you have a timer because you get that file, right? And you know how long you're training for. And sometimes those training sessions where you're like, ah, oh, you know, I'm just going to, I want to get a good video of him going between my legs. I'm just going to do a session, see if I can get that. And then you go back and you look and you go, oh, fuck, this is a, yeah, because I'm using that R5, which has ridiculous file size. I'm like, this is a 500 gig video is <laughs> 40 minutes at 4k and i didn't even realize because that time just flew right like and and when you look at it it's like there's very little even 
precision in the work like that I've asked for. We're just sort of fucking around together. And you can notice then there's so many different markers and that kind of stuff. And and for me as an educator of people to do similar things, I have to be careful of using that footage because it's like it can be sloppy, although the dog is still doing what I'm asking every time, right? And even though my cues aren't consistent, but that's after five years of deviations away from what was once a very, very clear, very, very consistent cueing for the dog that allows that that classical conditioning to do its work. And I think that's what I'm sort of pointing at is allowing classical conditioning in the true reflex as much as possible to do its work. Let it do the heavy lifting in the training and when you're adding commands, let the reflex response do the heavy lifting. And from there, you can start letting that slide and go to this leads to that. The dog mm. knows it. He's programmed to react to do it. And now we can start allowing little deviations and open him up and let him feel good about how he does these things beyond the reflex though, of him feeling the way that you programmed him to feel. Whew. That's my rant. I don't think it's so much a rant. I think it's actually a very intelligent insight on something that you've spent quite a lot of time thinking about and trying to, like I said before, I think it's when you're really trying to connect the dots with how everything works. While you were talking about that, I was kind of thinking about the relationship people have when they first learn to drive a car and how conscious you are of every single thing that you're doing. Like every time you look at something, you know, like how that can deviate everything. And that relationship changes from being extremely conscious from everything, from how much pressure you're putting on the accelerator to when you take your foot off and gently applying pressure to the brake and being aware of looking in the mirror and how that can make you wobble a bit on the road and everything like that. Like all of these things are really, like it's very involved. And I find that relationship works the same with when you're working with a dog, like every minute thing matters at the start. Whereas you do get very complacent after a period of time, like years on the road, you can tune out everything just sort of makes sense to you you know like you know when to accelerate you know when to brake you don't have to listen to the revs if you're driving a manual you don't need to look at your taco anymore like all of that vanishes it's just it, it's totally it is very much reflexive like you just look at it and you, you you can tune out you can be thinking about something entirely different you know you can thinking about things that are happening at work you can thinking about the destination you're going to none of this really makes sense and we do this a lot to dogs so when people look at us they go oh that's you know, like there's a lot missing out of that. Dude, this is this is years down the track. And this is the dog yeah. going, I got you, bro. I understand what you need. You know, like you and I, are, you know, like our minds are locked together. Like we've got signed, we've kind of got that Vulcan mind meld going on where, you know, like yeah. we've been doing this thing for such a long period of time. I get you. I know what you need from me. And here is my response to what you want. Yeah. We'll wrap it up, but... <laughs> It all fits together. So when I got my license, right? So in Australia here, it's 17. You can get your your P's. So you're on your learner plate. Someone else has to be in the car with you. And then you do a driving test and you get your P's. I, the day I did my test, I passed. We are at home and my sister was out with the family business was there and someone had to pick her up because the delivery business is always this juggling cars. And it was, I got the job, right? Go pick up your sister from work. And it was the first time in my life that I'd ever driven a car by myself with no one in the car. And it's stressful because, you know, exactly as you said, like I'm very new to it at this point. And no, I've always had someone when something goes wrong to tell me what to do or whatever. And I didn't on that day. So super concentrated. But also I'm realizing as a 17 year old kid, like I can go anywhere I want. Right. 
and there was a new order song on the radio and the other day this it's interesting this comes up because that came on the other day i think it was either on the radio or playlist or something and i said to rip i was like this song makes me feel free right because i at that time there was a layer of stress so myelin like you know would have been being wrapped heavily because i was stressed about this is the first time i'm doing this you know quite dangerous thing all alone nobody here to help me mm. but also this is as a 17 year old this is a huge day in my life because i know i can get in this fucking car and go anywhere i want and i've never had that level of freedom before in my life and that song whenever it comes on just gives me this it's almost it's a conditioned response. It absolutely is a reflex response and just makes me feel free. It's almost inexplicable, this feeling that comes. And it's not like I'm not a free person, right? It's not like I don't feel tethered. I'm not tethered or stuck by anything currently as we speak. But you play that song and it just makes me, I don't know, I just feel like a 17-year-old kid that's driving a car for the first fucking time, you know? And that's the power of that reflex when you hear that, like it's that's deeply ingrained and it makes me feel good. And you can, can, you can do that to dogs. You can make them feel a certain way with that reflex response. And from there, you can go, hey, I'd insist that you feel a certain way. Click, bam, now you feel that particular way. Now let's open you up. Let's let you learn. Let's let you do certain things because I've put you into the mindset that is useful for me. And that's the power, I think, of the reflex response over the this leads to that learning. I think music is so important in life and I often refer to it as time machines because it can transform you anywhere in time and space when you hear that song. Like you can instantly, like I, I listen to Living Thing by ELO and that reminds me, like I can literally relive the time that I used to spend on the road with my uncle. I can smell the, like the hot sun making that vinyl, the old vinyl cars that they used to have on the dash. I can smell that smell when I hear the lyrics to Living Thing. I'm right there with him, sitting next to him, telling jokes while we're going down a country road in Outback Victoria when that song comes on. It's amazing the transformative effect that music can actually have on you because of that reflexive response. Totally. I was just thinking about it when I was listening to you talking before. I remember a lesson I did years ago. This is when I was still in Victoria and I didn't really understand the true effect of how powerful classical conditioning is and, you know, reflexive response. I really, I didn't grasp the whole concept of it until this happened. And it really, it set me on a path to really want to understand it. I went around to this client's house and, you know, they, they were talking about some of the problems they have with their dog. And one of them was the dog just didn't like getting in the car whatsoever. And I said, what does the dog do when you try and get in the car? And they said, oh, it gets very upset. It starts whining and everything like that. And I said, well, without distressing the dog too much, can you show me what happens when you move towards the car? When the lady hitched a dog up to the collar and lead and walked over towards the car, the dog started dry reaching and then like threw up a puddle of bile. And um, she goes, oh my God, it's never done that before. I said, oh, is your dog sick? because I didn't understand what was happening in the moment. I hadn't seen anything like that. This was my introduction to it. But after a period of time, I concluded that that, there was nothing wrong with the dog. The dog was fine Um, because she said, oh, he's never done this before. But what happened was the dog had a reflexive response because the car was making it feel car sick. Like it conjured up, the reflex acted on the body and it, it involuntarily threw up. And I thought, wow, that's just fucking powerful when you can- You know, like the dog wasn't even in the car. 
the dog was approaching the car and immediately just threw up. Even the concept of thinking about getting into the car made the dog relive the moment. This makes me feel sick. Now I'm sick. Amazing. It's incredible. Yeah. I actually had a a similar instance with a dog being crated and it was the dog had physically, was physically ill, like really noticeable physical symptoms from being crated and being allowed out of the crate at the maximum of its expression of protest, right? Mm -hmm. And stress. And it had, you know, conditioned response that when it got shown the crate, it became so stressed that it had physical symptoms and it was, you know, it's a conditioned response and it was built over time. It, it, it's not like it doesn't start there. Anyway, hey, i got to go. Better wrap it up. Yeah, sounds good, man. All right. Hey, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. Oh, hey, before we do, I want to give big congratulations to John Imler who has taken on the role of the executive director for the IACP. Mm. A lot of people, you know, if you don't know John, he is a fucking workhorse. Like the amount of shit that he has done on behalf of the IACP behind the scenes over the last couple of years that I've been working with him and he's been kicking my ass and trying to get me involved. He is, he has been doing an unbelievable amount of work and he was recognized for that last year. You know, he got the president's award from the IACP, which is very, very deserved. And he's agreed to take on the role of the executive director. And so we should get him on the show. We should absolutely get him on to talk about for sure what that role and what he's going to be doing in that position. But just a big congratulations to him. And if you don't know John and you are a member of the ICP, take me at my word, we're in good hands with him. He's a not only an awesome dude, but a fucking worker, which is everything we need. So congratulations, John. Good I agree you. with everything you said. And I was very impressed that you actually managed to use the slogan in that little congratulatory to John that we're in good hands uh, being the IACP. Yeah. Safe hands. Absolutely. Yeah. Well-deserved, a great guy and very well-balanced individual that he's a great critical thinker, a good hard worker and a hell of a hell of a good human being just in general. Yeah, totally. So John, this is your formal notice. Get ready to come on the show. (laughs) We'll be in touch (laughs) to pick out of time. All right. That's it. For another episode of the Canine Paradigm, as always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe, do all that kind of stuff, you know, spread the word. The, probably the most help you could do is tell a friend in real life, but make sure you're wearing a mask when you tell them because you're not allowed to engage with any other human beings unless you're fucking wearing a mask. <laughs> even in your own home, just wear a mask in your bed. Just fucking do whatever it takes. Yeah, even when you're uh, thinking about a bit of nookie, go say to your partner, oh, okay, we better put our masks on. Yeah, everybody has to wear a biohazard suit. That's yep. the world we're in at the moment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, the show, uh, you can jump into Patreon. We really, like, truly, truly appreciate all that support in the Patreon. I will sometime, in the before listening to this, I'll have organized the next uh, live Q&A. The product that I'm putting out is very nearly ready. I'm very happy with all that and how it's going. So jump into Patreon. There's heaps of backlog of information. And, again, we really, really super appreciate all support that we get in there, Mm. but please don't ever put yourself in any financial difficulty for our sake. That's important to us. And I know there's people that kind of feel bad about doing it. If you need to pull out, pull out. It's no hard feelings at all. Everybody's doing it tough at the moment. Totally agree. Um, And But what you should do is buy some T-shirts because you've got to be dressed and you've got to get a wall tapestry because, I mean – who would own a house without one in it? Hey, we got one. I've ordered one. I've, it's literally here. This, this wrinkling taper that you can see yeah. is our massive, like it's the biggest wall tapestry you can get, and I'm going to put it up in our training shed. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. So get those. 
If you want to get in contact with us, best way, jump into the Facebook group, the group source, some information in there. And if it's personal or you want got something, blah, 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 just shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. That's it. Goodbye.